Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We want to continue along the lines of uh, the subject of faith, subject of faith that we've been teaching on uh, Sunday mornings for the last several weeks. And let's start in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Mark chapter 11 tells the story of how that Jesus, just the last week of his time here on the earth before he was crucified, how that he went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and he was walking by going from Jerusalem to Bethany, just a couple of miles away. And he walked by a fig tree or saw a fig tree and it had leaves on it. It was the time of year for fig trees to produce. So Jesus went to see if he could get some figs off the tree. But it didn't have any figs on it. There was no fruit on the tree. It was just leaves. It looked good. It looked like it might be a source of provision, but there was no fruit on it. So Jesus cursed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard him say it. Next morning they come by, pass by, going back to Jerusalem from Bethany, passed by the same fig tree and it was dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance what Jesus said, said, look, master, the fig tree is withered away. We'll start in verse 22. And Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. The original Greek says, have the faith of God. We sometimes coin the phrase, have the God kind of faith. Well, if we're to have the faith of God, what kind of faith would God have other than the God kind? I can't find anything in Scripture that tells us any other kind of faith than he has other than the God kind of faith. And Jesus, in, in responding to Peter's comments, Peter really didn't ask a question. He just said, look at the fig tree that you curse. It's, it's withered away. It's dried up from the root. There's an implied question, however, and Jesus recognized that. And notice he did not say that he was able to do something special because he was the son of God. He didn't say anything like, this is not available for you. He didn't say anything that excluded himself from any other human being and the rights that we have as human beings to operate here on the earth. He said, have the faith of God. He's telling them that they can do this. Anybody can do this. He goes on in verse 23. For verily I say unto you that whosoever, well whosoever means everybody, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus said the, the tree died because you can have what you say. Well, they heard what he said. They heard him curse the tree. No man eat fruit of the hereafter forever. And then Jesus tells us a principle, and it's not just a New Testament principle. It's not something that he initiated during the time that he was here on the earth. It was something that the, that the Old Testament tells us about in many places. For example, in Numbers chapter 14, the story of the 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan to spy out the land and to come back to report to the people. You remember that 10 of those spies came back and said, the people that live in the land are too strong for us. They're too great. We're small and they're great. But two of the spies came back and said, well, we saw everything that the others saw. We saw the cities with walls around them. We saw the, the strength of the people that live in the land. But they said, God's with us. And since God's with us, he'll deliver the land unto us. Well, the ten spies wouldn't change their mind, and they influenced the people. Most people are influenced by the majority report, whether it's right or not. And so the people rose up and began to cry and weep. But Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that came back and, and had, were part of the group that went to spy out the land, they came back and they said, don't rebel against God. It'll be okay. God's on our side. God being on our side will assure us the victory. But the congregation bade stone them with stones, the scripture says. Now God answered, talking to Moses. He said, Caleb and Joshua, because they were faithful, they will inherit the promise. But everybody else is going to get exactly what they said. 
The way that it says it in Numbers chapter 14, I believe it's verse 26. The way that it says it is interesting because God says, as truly as I live. In other words, there's a characteristic about what he's going to say that's eternal and unchanging. That's the way God lives. He's eternal and he's unchanging. And so he said, it's verily uh, I say unto you, as truly as I live, I will do unto them according to what they've spoken in my ears. Folks, this is a principle that was established from the time that God made man and put him on the earth. This principle began in the Garden of Eden. God created man in his own image to have authority here on the earth. Well, how if we're made in the image and likeness of God and God's intent was for man to have authority, how is man going to exercise that authority? Well, the only evidence we have of anything taking place before that is the creation account where God says in Genesis chapter 1, God says 10 specific things with his mouth. He speaks words about 10 specific things. And the end result was the creation of the earth. So if we're made in the image of God and in his likeness, and God exercised his creative power or his authority over the earth by the spoken word, then man of a necessity would have to understand that his authority here on the earth, the authority that God gave him over all the work of his hand, that his authority, man's authority on the earth, would be exercised by the words that they say. Now compare that with what Jesus just said in Mark eleven twenty three. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, whosoever shall say. He didn't say whosoever will think about it. He didn't say whosoever will pray about it. He said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. The heart is talking about the spirit of man, the eternal part of man. Shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. It's exactly the same thing that Genesis, the account of creation in Genesis is telling us. It's telling us that God created everything by the words of his mouth and he put man here made in his own image and in his own likeness, an exact copy of himself to exercise authority over the earth through his words. Well, apparently man didn't lose his authority when he fell. If he had, then Jesus wouldn't be able to operate on the eternal and unchanging principle that God deals with us according to the words that we speak. Now, another thing that we focused on before in one of the services uh, prior to this one, one of the things that we noticed is the relationship between believing and speaking. Notice in verse 23, saying or speaking is mentioned three times and believing is only mentioned once. Most people aren't missing it primarily in their believing. They're missing it in the things that they say. Verily I say unto you, Jesus said, what things soever you desire, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm starting to quote verse 24 now. He said, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Now you've got one say and one believe but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. There's say three times in that verse and believes only there once. But folks, you know as well as I do that the emphasis on most of the teaching we hear on faith is to believe. Jesus, however, put the emphasis on the speaking part. Now I want you to see something else about this. Look with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost or writing to the church by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he's talking generalizations here. He's talking about principles. Beginning in Romans chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul said, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thy heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. Now he's talking about the principle of faith. And that faith 
brings us into a righteous condition when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that's the context that he's going to be speaking about in this passage of Scripture. But notice the relationship between your mouth and your heart. Notice the things that Paul is going to tell us and the connection that he has between your mouth and the words that you say and the heart or the spirit of man. He says the righteousness which is of faith, in other words, the God kind of faith. The God kind of faith doesn't look for God to come down from heaven to do something else. The, the God kind of faith doesn't look for Jesus to be raised again from the dead. And folks, this is so important, particularly in the area of healing. Because so many people are expecting somehow or another that God will heal them. So many people believe that God has made promises of healing for us. But he really hasn't. He made promises in the Old Testament. He made promises under the Old Covenant. But Jesus has already fulfilled the law of Moses. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. He accomplished what he was sent to do. And a part of what he was sent to do was to take our infirmities and carry our pains, our sickness. So if he's fulfilled that, that's not a promise. It's a statement of declaration of who we are and what belongs to us. But as long as people are looking in the future for God to do something, that's just the principle that Paul's talking about here. That's not the God kind of faith in action. There's a lot of people in hope that don't know that they're in hope instead of faith. There's a lot of people that are looking for God to do something when he's already done everything he's ever going to do. He sent Jesus and put the authority, the God kind of faith, under our power, under our control, to bring about what we want in the earth, to bring about what we desire. People are looking for God to do something. And when God doesn't do the thing that they're looking for in either the manner or the time that they're expecting it to be done or wanting it to be done, then they conclude that God must not be interested in doing what they're looking for. In other words, they conclude that healing must not be for everybody. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. So he says the righteousness which is the faith, in other words, the God kind of faith, it doesn't look for God to come down from heaven to do something. It doesn't look for Jesus to pay any greater price than he's already paid and be raised again from the dead. Well, what does it do? Look in verse 8. But what saith it? In other words, if it doesn't look for God to come down from heaven to do something more than he's already done, then what does the God kind of faith do? What saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, Peter tells us what the heart is. He calls the, the, the heart the hidden man. He's talking about wives winning their husbands through their behavior. And he says, don't put all your efforts into the outward appearance. Either clothes or jewelry or that type of thing. In other words, he says, but then he, he goes on to say, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is a quiet spirit. In other words, he's saying the heart is the spirit. The heart is the eternal part of man. The heart is the eternal part of man. One of the greatest things that happened when the Bible relates to us the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, one of the greatest tragedies that is overlooked by so much of the modern day church is that man lost control of his tongue. See, man was created a spirit being. Jesus said, God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, if man was made in his image and after his likeness, and God is a spirit, then man has to be a spirit. Otherwise, we wouldn't be made in the image and likeness of God. And so man is a spirit being. Adam and Eve were spirit beings living in human bodies. But every bit of the information they had, every source, every, everything that could be a source, of information that they had here on the earth was from what God had put in them spiritually. In other words, 
before the fall, every word that they spoke was from their spirit, not from their flesh. And so when man fell, the light went out. They died spiritually, just like God said they would. He said, if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I've commanded thee not to eat, and the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, they didn't die physically. So he couldn't have been talking about physical death. But they did die spiritually. And spiritual death is separation from God. So when they died spiritually, their spirits, they didn't stop being spirit beings. They just stopped being alive in spirit. So when their spirits died, when the light went out on the inside of them, now they have only one source of information. Where before their source of information was God and that which he deposited in them. Now that source of information comes only from their flesh. Adam lost control of his tongue. Every word that he spoke from the time of the fall was a word that it was influenced by his, his flesh rather than his spirit. So when Jesus starts telling us about this operation of faith, this eternal purpose of faith, you look back at some of the Old Testament prophecies and you'll find out that God looked forward to man being made a new spirit. God promised that he would take out the old stony heart or hard heart spirit that wasn't alive unto God. The stony heart, he called it. And he said, I'll put a new spirit in you. I don't think man has plumbed the depths of the importance of being alive in spirit. We look at it like, well, we're saved, and that's great. We've got eternity provided for us. We know when we leave this earth, we'll go and spend eternity with Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. But they fail to identify what that eternal life, what that new spirit, that new creation will do and provide for us here on the earth. Folks, whereas most of the church thinks we'll have eternal life when we get to heaven, You've got all the eternal life you're ever going to have right now. Now your body will be changed. When Jesus comes back for us, we'll receive our redeemed bodies. But that's not eternal life. Eternal life is what belongs to us now because the life of God's within us. And so when Paul is telling us about these principles, he's identifying the importance of this God kind of faith. Again, verse 8, what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Notice the connection between the mouth and the heart. Here's how it works. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Folks, I want you to realize something. Nobody has ever been saved other than the exercise of the God kind of faith to receive the work that Jesus has done for us as Lord and Savior. You can't get saved any other way. So whereas so much of the church world, the modern day church world, is in the dark, completely in the dark, about how the operation of this God kind of faith is supposed to work to provide for us here on the earth, how this God kind of faith is supposed to be utilized by mankind, to exercise authority here on the earth according to God's plan and purpose. Every one of those believers came into the family of God the same way, and that is by believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth, in this case, that Jesus is Lord. There's no other way to be saved. Well, if we use the God kind of faith to believe in our heart and say with our mouth for the most important thing there is, which is to come into the family of God and to receive eternal life. Why would we think that the God kind of faith stops there? Why would we think that there's no other area or areas where the God kind of faith should and should, uh, is and should be exercised? If the God kind of faith receives what Jesus did concerning the forgiveness of sins, then why wouldn't the God kind of faith provide for us everything else the Bible says Jesus did for us when he died too? That if thou shalt confess 
with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now folks, that's not just concerning forgiveness of sins. Here's another principle. Anything you exercise the God kind of faith toward, anything you operate in the God kind of faith to take hold of, you'll never be ashamed. In other words, you'll never fail to receive. Here's, this God kind of faith is an eternal principle that never changes. It's just as eternal as God himself is. It's just as unchanging as God himself. Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This word saved means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and to heal. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and, and the calling upon the name of the Lord, he's talking about it, goes back to the principle of the God kind of faith. Whoever operates in the God kind of faith shall be delivered, shall be made whole, shall be healed. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In other words, he's saying the God kind of faith, the source of the God kind of faith comes from the knowledge of who God is as identified in the gospel. Now you remember in Acts chapter 14, it tells us about Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey. And they went to the region of Galatia, into the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And it says they found a crippled man at Lystra who had never walked, who was crippled from his mother's womb who had never walked. It says the same heard Paul speak. Paul was preaching to them. The preceding verse, verse 7 I believe it is, in Acts chapter 14, says that there they preached the gospel. Well, the same heard Paul speak, and Paul beheld this guy. He looked at it, and he could tell that this man had faith to be healed. Never walked a step in his life. Never heard a sermon about Jesus or anything else in all of his life. But Paul preached the gospel, and the gospel must have contained healing because that's what the man had faith for. Paul perceived that the man had faith to be healed. Well, we just read in Romans chapter 10 that you can't believe for healing unless you hear it preached. So Paul had to preach healing then as a part of what he called the gospel, as a part of what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to tell us was the gospel. Paul's gospel included healing. Paul called that the word of faith, which we preach. Why would he call it the word of faith? Because the preaching of God's word produces faith. He called it the word of faith. He called his gospel the word of faith. Well, this crippled guy heard Paul speak, and Paul looked on him and perceived that he had faith to be healed. Now, he's not yet healed. And it's important for us to realize that he had faith to be healed before he ever got anything. The faith that he had to be healed came from hearing the word of God. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So he had to hear the word of God preached concerning healing. Paul had to preach healing for him to have faith in it. Paul perceived that the man had faith to be healed and he said to him with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. This man leaped and walked. So once he exercised his faith, once he put his faith into motion, by doing what Paul said to do. That faith that he had to be healed brought healing to him. It brought healing to him. But notice the connection that Paul makes 
here in Romans chapter 10, notice the connection he makes between believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Just like Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three. Now I want you to look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says something very interesting in verse, uh, well, chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Timothy 6, 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Notice that he said there's a fight to faith. It tells us to fight the good fight of faith. It's the only fight the Christian has. We don't fight with people. We don't fight against things. The instruction given to us is to fight the good fight of faith. Now at this point in time that Paul writes these things to Timothy... He's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus during Paul's lifetime, during the time he was here on the earth, was the greatest church in size and in scope and in every other way possible. Paul left Timothy, his son in the faith, to pastor the greatest church, the the one that was most well-known worldwide of any other place. That we have record of at least. But I have a question for you. Why is he telling Timothy to take hold of eternal life? If Timothy's the pastor of the church. And he's got to be saved already doesn't he? He says fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. The laying hold of eternal life. He's talking about to Timothy. Cannot mean salvation. It cannot mean the confession of Jesus as your Lord. Because you believe that God has raised him from the dead to come into the family of God. Timothy's already in the family of God. So what is this laying hold of eternal life that he's talking about? Well, it has to be anything and everything else that Jesus provided for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, this fighting the good kind of the fighting the good fight of faith has to be the fight associated with the God kind of faith put in action. Well, what are we to put it in action for? For everything that belongs to us is a part of the sacrifice of Jesus that comes in the package called salvation. Isaiah 53 tells us what that is. Verse 5, he said he was wounded, talking about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Both of those words mean sin. So it's talking about not only the original sin, but personal sins. Jesus paid the price for both. He paid the price for all of the the sins of mankind. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's talking about material well-being. It's translated, that word uh, peace is translated prosperity in other places in the Old Testament. So the chastisement or the punishment of our peace, our material well-being here on the earth was paid by Jesus. And in the last verse of, uh, last phrase, last part of Isaiah 53, 5 says, not only was he wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now folks, Jesus paid the same price for our peace, our material well-being, as well as our healing, physical healing for the body, as he paid for the sins of mankind both the original sin of Adam and our personal sins. So when Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that winning the good fight of faith is laying hold on eternal life, he's saying that's the way that we are instructed. That's the principle that we're instructed to use. Again, it's the God kind of faith to receive and take hold of anything and everything that God has provided for us. But what is this good fight of faith well it has to be a fight that you win otherwise it wouldn't be a good fight nobody comes out the loser in the contest and says well that was a good game or that was a good match it would have been a good match if they had won so this good fight of faith he's talking about is the successful application of our authority here on the earth the acceptable 
exercise of our authority here on the earth to take hold of everything that Jesus paid, paid the price for us to have. Won't it be a tragedy when so many people get to heaven and realize they could have had more because of what Jesus did for us? They could have had more here on the earth according to the will of God than, they, than what they had. I think there's going to be a lot of tears shed in heaven when people first get there because their eyes will be opened to what they could have had and what God had planned for them. And compared to the low, low level of life that they, they may have lived here on the earth. That's going to bring sorrow to a lot of people. We all, all, oftentimes we hear people say things like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord why he let this happen to me. Well, when they get to heaven, they're going to realize that God didn't let it happen. They were the ones that let it happen. Because Jesus already paid the price for it. So here we have Paul's instruction to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Look with me over to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 now, please. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's talk a minute about this good fight of faith. How to win the faith battle. We'll start in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice that doesn't say anything about you being strong in yourself. Our strength is in him. Which means no matter how we feel, whether we feel weak or whether we feel strong, our strength is supposed to be in him, not in ourselves. So he said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now this word wiles in verse 11, it means deceit, it means trickery, it means strategies, it means schemes. So that tells us that the devil has a scheme to work against us. That tells us the devil has a strategy to come against us. But this word wiles comes from the root word that means traveling over. Now, you could well understand why they wouldn't have translated it that way. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the traveling over of the devil. Well, that doesn't make sense to us. But the scripture is trying to tell us something. It's trying to get something across to us. And here's what it's trying to relay. There's only one road that the devil travels. There's only one road that the devil travels. And the Bible is telling us how the devil operates. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. I think a large, large part of the church is ignorant of Satan's devices. I think there are too many Christians in the earth today that don't know how the devil operates. And if you don't know how the devil operates, you don't know how to defend against him or to defend against his attacks. But there is one road that the devil travels, and it's the road of deceit. It's the road of deceit. If you can establish your defenses against being deceived, then the devil has no hold on you in any way whatsoever. God is being faithful here. The Holy Ghost is being faithful to show us and to reveal to us there's one way and only one way the devil can operate. Now folks, let's back up and think about this from a big picture standpoint. If there is a fight to faith, and the God kind of faith is to believe in your heart and to say with your mouth, if the exercise of man's authority comes through the speaking of words, then there has to be one and only one thing or one, one most important thing that the devil is trying to get us to do. See, the battle is for your words. The battle is about the words that you speak. Satan can't take hold of your tongue and make you speak. God won't. God gave man authority, so you're the one that decides what you say. But remember, the eternal and unchanging principle is you'll have what you say. So in order for the devil to rob us of the things that belongs to us, 
He has to control our tongue some way or another. He has to influence us to use our words in a manner contrary to what the Bible says Jesus accomplished for us. That's the only way that he's got. That's the only thing that he's got. And notice it's putting on the armor of God that stops his plans, his schemes, his strategies from being successful. In other words, there's one thing that's required, the armor of God, for us to be able to stand in faith or fight the good fight of faith to take hold of what Jesus did for us. The Holy Spirit said something to me several weeks ago. He said, God's the God of systems. God establishes principles. Everything about this creation, this world that we know about, operates on a system of physical laws. I'm talking about, when I say physical laws, I don't mean physical meaning the body. I mean the laws of physics. And those principles keep this earth working the way that it's supposed to. Same thing's true where the human body is concerned. Look at all the systems that, are, that make up the part of the human body. You've got the nervous system. You've got the circulatory system. You've got the skeletal system. Well, when God formed man from the dust of the earth, he put all those things in practice. He made the, man, made the body of man to operate that way. Now, he doesn't give us the details about what he did or how he did it. It just simply says he created man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him and man became a living soul. Well, making him from the dust of the earth must mean that he took care of all those systems. He established and created all those systems that govern the human body. So God is a God of systems. What does that mean? That means God works according to principles. Just like gravity always works. It doesn't take a break on Tuesdays. Gravity works every day. Every system that God has established works every day. And the spiritual system, it's not just physical systems that he's established. He's established physical, I mean spiritual systems or spiritual laws to work just like gravity works on the earth. And one of those systems, one of the most important systems or spiritual laws that he's put in motion is the law of faith. The spiritual force of faith. And again, if God created it, he's got to be talking about the same God kind of faith that Jesus is talking about in Mark eleven twenty two. 22. The faith that believes in its heart and speaks with its mouth. The faith that believes and speaks. So where he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Here's what we're to do to enable us to defeat the devil. And not succumb to his influence. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The whole armor of God is identified in the next few verses. Let's read what they are real quickly and come back. Verse 13 he says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation says, Stand when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, there must be a preparation then. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. What is the preparation? The preparation is putting on the armor of God. So he says, stand therefore, verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all or over all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Now, all those things he mentions there are things or characteristics of eternal life. These are things that belong to us because of Jesus' work, his death, burial, and resurrection. For example, one of the things that he speaks about is the gospel of peace. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having peace with God, we are to walk in the, the manner according to the word's direction. We already have been given the peace of God. So all of these things he's talking about for us to put on. How do you put on these things? How do you put on righteousness like a breastplate? How do you put on peace that's like shoes? How do you use faith like a shield? Folks, it's very simple. And that is every one of these 
are put on through the knowledge of who we are and what God has done for us through Jesus. Now I want you to hear it again the way that I said it. This armor of God is coming unto the knowledge of what we have in each of these areas because of what Jesus did for us. So if the fight of faith is over your words, but the trickery of the devil, the traveling over the road that the devil travels, is deceit, that makes the mind the battleground for this faith fight. That makes the mind the battleground for this faith fight. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's start in verse 3. Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now, he didn't say we don't fight. A war is a fight, isn't it? So here he says we don't war after the flesh. That doesn't mean that we don't have a fight at all. It just means we don't have a physical flight. fight. We're not called to be in a physical battle with anybody. Well, if it's not a physical battle, what is it? It's a spiritual battle. So he says, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. They're not earthly. Our weapons are not earthly. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now strongholds means a fortress. It's talking about the enemy's defenses. In other words, just like we saw in Ephesians chapter 6. That if we'll put on the armor of God. It enables us, in other words, if we go in the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus, it will enable us to overcome the schemes, the, strat the strategies, the deceitfulness, the trickery of the devil. In other words, it will enable us to overcome him in the one way that he has to attack, the one road that he attacks. What is that one road? Deceit. If we can keep from being deceived, we can keep from being influenced of the devil. But here's telling us the devil has set up defenses too. Just like we should set up defenses against him. It says he's set up defenses against us. So again it says for though we walk in the flesh we do not war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare. God gave us things to fight with. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly or physical. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are your spiritual weapons designed to do to pull down the devil's defenses? We have spiritual weapons, spiritual forces, spiritual laws that enable us to pull down the devil's defenses against us. Remember Jesus talking about the church. He said to his disciples, that on the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is, being the Son of God, he said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Folks, gates are a defensive position. It doesn't say the, the, the arrows of the enemy. It doesn't say the moving forward of the enemy will be stopped. See, the picture that Jesus painted was that we're the one on the move, and the devil's trying to keep his fortifications intact. Here he says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now what are these strongholds? What are these strongholds? Notice he tells us, casting down imaginations. The word imagination is the word reasonings. The word reasoning. Jesus was talking to the, to the uh, Jews on one occasion. And he said, you have made the word of God of none effect by your traditions. By your traditions. Now the word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe folks. The word of God is the source of this physical realm and this physical universe. Everything that was made that we can see and feel and touch. And experience. And relate to emotionally or intellectually. Everything that we have around us. Everything about this existence was created by God's word. The Bible tells us that that word that he spoke were words of faith. He spoke and it was. He said let there be light and light was. 
He said, let there be a, an earth, talking about the dry land on the earth, and it was. The Bible tells us that we have a measure of this God kind of faith. This God kind of faith, Jesus called it mountain-moving faith. Paul calls it in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul calls, or chapter 11 rather, Paul calls it the faith that created the universe. So this God kind of faith, the activation, the exercise of this God kind of faith must be a weapon. It must be included in the weapon that we're given to fight with to pull down the devil's defenses. Now again, what are the devil's defenses? It says casting down imaginations. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. Remember what I said, folks. If the faith fight is a fight for your words, the battleground is the mind. The only way the devil can influence your words, the only way he can deceive you to keep you from taking hold of what God has wrought for us and accomplished for us through the work of Jesus is to screw up our thinking, to influence our thinking. Because if we think wrong, then we'll believe wrong. And if we believe wrong, we'll speak wrong. Wrong meaning contrary to the Word of God. If we believe in high things that exalt themselves against the Word of God, then we'll have the wrong belief, wrong picture about God, and we'll speak Words that are contrary to what the God's word has already said. Casting down imaginations. So again, let me finish the, the comment that I made about Jesus talking to the, the Jews. He said, you've made the word of God of none effect through your traditions. The word tradition there is the word reasonings. Preconceived notions. In other words, the Jews and the Jewish leaders had been so indoctrinated by other rabbis' interpretation of God's word that they had missed the true meaning of it themselves. And those preconceived notions, those wrong thoughts, those inaccurate reasonings kept the word of God from being a reality in their lives. Well, if that's true for the Jews, it would have to be true for us too, at least in potential. If the Jews could be deceived and miss out on what God has done for them. Then we have to take guard, be on our guard so that we're not deceived. So that we don't think and reason wrongly. Because wrong thinking will destroy the, the operation of faith. It will keep the God kind of faith from working for you. Now let me read this again. I want you to make sure to get this in your mind real good. And then we want to go to another scripture or another passage. And show you the connection. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. Our weapons are mighty. Through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, if they weren't stronger than the strongholds, if our weapons were not mightier than the strongholds, there's no way that our weapons could pull the strongholds down. So your weapons are greater than any of Satan's defenses. The God kind of faith is greater than any of Satan's defenses. So that means anything and everything that he tells you about it not working, your faith not working, your faith won't work, you're unworthy or whatever, those things have to be untrue. Those things have to be untrue. The devil is a liar and the father of lies, the Bible says. And I don't know about you, but most of the, thing he li most of the things that he lies about to me is me. He knows I believe in the truth of the word. So attacking the word is a waste of his time. So what does he do? He attacks us. He tries to convince us. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They're mightier than any stronghold or defense the devil has. And it, they enable us therefore to cast down imaginations and every high thing. Do you see the word high there? Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I want you to understand what the Holy Ghost is telling us. And I'll prove it to you with another scripture in just a moment. 
But the Holy Ghost is telling us that any reasoning, any thought, any perception, any conclusion that we draw that contradicts God's word is called a high thing. In other words, we give more credibility to that thought, that reasoning, that conclusion than we give to the word. Folks, the Bible tells us the devil is defeated. It tells us the devil is paralyzed. Well, why do so many Christians then believe that the devil is so strong? Because they're operating on some kind of reasoning. They're operating on some kind of idea other than the word of God. So the weapons that we're given are mighty enough to pull down every stronghold of the enemy. And to defeat every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity. You can take thoughts captive. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, to agree with the word. See folks, when we take sides against God's word, we're taking sides against him. When we try to explain away, which so much of the modern church does. Explain away what the Bible says God has done for us. The Bible says healing's for all. The Bible says healing's a part of the work that Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his sacrifice. Well, that belongs to everybody then. But the church makes up excuses why healing doesn't work for everybody or why healing doesn't belong to everybody. Well, what is that excuse? What is that reasoning? What is that argument? It's a high thing that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Now, with that in mind, look with me to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 3 because we've used it several times in this series on faith. I'm sure you'll recognize it. Romans 12, 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now we always say when we read this verse, we always point out that the words of himself are in italics. That means the translators added them to help our understanding. And certainly it applies to us. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But there's a lot of other things we shouldn't think more highly than we ought to think about too. So this is not just talking about what we think about ourselves. It's saying that we should avoid anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We should reject any reasoning, any idea, any argument that exalts itself against what the Word of God says. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We've used this scripture, particularly the last part of the scripture, to identify that we have a measure of the kind of faith that created the universe. We have a measure of this God kind of faith that will move mountains. We have a measure. And notice it says that we are to think soberly. The root word of the word sober in the Greek means not moved by emotions. Not moved by emotions. Now again, let's back up and look at the big picture. We talked a little bit ago about the 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan which was the promised land. It was the land that God said that he had given them. Before he ever brought them out of Egypt, he said, I'm taking you to the promised land. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. And the 12 spies came back and everybody agreed that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. But 10 of them said there are walls around the cities that are bigger than anything we've ever seen. These people have armies that are greater than we are. They said, we can't do it because of the strength of the people in the, in the cities, strength of the people in the land. As we said before, Caleb and Joshua, two of the 12 spies who saw exactly the same things that the others saw, they said, don't rebel against God. Now, what was the rebellion against God that they were trying to avoid? They were trying to avoid the congregation being influenced by the 10 spies report, the evil report that they brought up about the size and the strength of the people that lived in the land. In other words, he's saying, don't speak against God. 
don't speak against God. Now, what caused these ten spies to come back with this evil report? Saying that they can't do what God said that they could do. Or that they couldn't have what the land that God said they could have. Well, when they saw those cities, when they saw the walls around the city of Jericho, it stirred something in them. It stirred the emotion of fear. Now, you know as well as I do that the walls of Jericho wound up not doing one thing to stop the children of Israel 40 years later when they come back and take the land. They walked around the city one time every day for six days, and on the seventh day they walked around the city seven times. And the Bible says then they gave a, a yell, a shout, and the walls fell down flat. King James says the walls fell down flat. Now, the walls were 100 feet tall and 50 feet thick. So if the wall just falls over, they've still got a 50-foot barrier. So where it says the walls fell down flat, it literally means the earth opened up and the walls went vertically down to where it was even ground. Well, I can see why they were so afraid of the walls 40 years ago. They saw those walls the first time they came into the land. The ten spies came back and said, the walls say we can't take the land. The walls were a non-issue when they finally went in 40 years later. So what did the devil do in their case? He deceived them into thinking they couldn't take the land because the size of a wall that wound up having no consequence or no bearing on the taking of the promised land anyway. So they were deceived by the emotions that they felt because of the circumstances in the land. Now, Caleb and Joshua proved even before Jesus came to sacrifice himself or to be sacrificed for us, Caleb and Joshua proved that you don't have to give in to the wrong emotions. They said, we saw the, the walls, we saw the people. Yeah, they are strong, but God said it was our land. So notice what the difference between the ten spies and Caleb and Joshua really came down to. We know that it was the words that they spoke, and that's the important part. God said that he would do that according to them he would do to them according to the words that they had spoken in his ears. But what influenced their words? What influenced the words that were spoken in God's ears? Fear based on circumstance. It was not a rational fear. It was not a rational fear that they operated on. So they were cheated out of 40 years of their lives because they believed the wrong thing. Because they were tricked by the devil into concluding the wrong thing or reasoned the wrong thing. And as a result, they failed to take the promised land. And they got exactly what they said. They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until the old generation died out. Except for Caleb and Joshua. Well then now we know how the devil works. Since this was an example that the Bible gives so that we can understand the devices of the enemy. We see how he operates. Folks, there's a verse of scripture in Proverbs that says there is no wisdom against God. So whatever reason the devil might give, whatever influence he might try to bring to pass or bring to bear on us not to accept God's word as truth, there's no wisdom, there's no good reason to accept it to be true, ever. So this is why Paul says, that we should think soberly, not moved by emotion. Well, if we're not moved by emotion, what are we going to be moved by? I don't know about you, but I'm going to be moved by the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So we should think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man in the measure of faith. Again, here's this measure of faith, the measure of the kind of faith, the God kind of faith that created the universe. Well, we don't have to be moved by our, our emotions when we realize, realize the strength and the power behind this God kind of faith. It's stronger than anything the devil can do. It's greater than anything the devil can bring. And when we know that, and again, here it is, here's the operation of the mind. When we know, when we gain the knowledge of what the Bible says about who we are and what belongs to us. We don't have to be afraid of what the devil does. We don't have to be afraid of the, the, the emotions that the devil tries to bring 
against us to influence our actions. Now, let's see the context of these things that are spoken in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This phrase, reasonable service, literally means spiritual worship. They that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus said. So he says, present your body a living sacrifice. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renewing means reversal by replacement. I'm sorry, it means reversal by repetition. Reversal by repetition. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. The word prove means to experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, if we will allow ourselves to be governed only by the knowledge of God's word, to renew our minds, it's a process. We have to reverse ourselves from thinking according to the way that the world thinks and instead teach ourselves or school ourselves into thinking according to what God's word says. Well, what if the circumstances contradict it? Don't worry. The God kind of faith will change things to bring about what God's word says. It's in that context, the renewing of the mind. Again, the battleground is the mind. The fight is for your words. But the battleground is the mind. So then Paul concludes, he says, think soberly, not moved by emotions, that we may determine what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. If you want to live in God's best, to think like God thinks. There's an Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 55, I think it is. Verse 11, where God said, God tells Israel, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Now, if God is thumbing his nose at mankind and saying, nah, 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 nah. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. Well, God wouldn't be unjust like that, would he? So why is he telling Israel, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways? So that we can learn to think God's thoughts. So that we can learn to operate in God's ways. And then he tells us about the power of the word. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that that which I sent it to do and bring to pass that which I please. In other words, God says when you speak his word back to him. It's never void of power. You want to add power to the word? Speak it. Until it's spoken, it's just dormant. It's like the the most powerful seed in the universe. But you got to plant it to make it work. How do you plant it? By speaking. You quote God's word back to him. Not just one time, but over and over and over again. God said, put me in remembrance. It's not that he forgot what he said, folks. He needs to know that you know what he said. And that's what adds power to the word. And that action of faith, that operation of faith, the God kind of faith, not moved by what we see, not moved by what we feel, the operation or the exercise of the authority given unto mankind by speaking God's word brings results. Jesus said radical results, even the kind of results that would move a mountain. We know it's the kind of results that created the universe. And that operation of faith, that exercise of faith, that confession of faith is greater than anything the devil can ever bring to bear. One last scripture before we close. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us hold fast. If we have to hold fast to something, the implication is that something's going to try to take, a, our, take it out of our hands. Something's going to try to make us loosen our grip. That's the fight of faith. That's the devil battling for your words through the only road that he can travel, the attack he's got, and that is speaking lies to your mind. So Paul said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Hold fast the profession. This word profession is also translated confession in other places in the New Testament. 
So if we hold fast the confession of our faith, if we hold fast to speaking God's word, no matter what it looks like, no matter how things appear, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what the devil says, no matter what circumstances arise, if we hold fast the profession or confession of our faith, hold fast to saying God's word, it will always come to pass. Skip down with me to verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. This word confidence means trust. It's talking about the God kind of faith. Don't let go. Don't change your words. Don't start saying something contrary to what God's word says, no matter what it looks like or how you feel. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. In other words, will always bring favorable results to bear. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Folks, what is the will of God? Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that he believe on him who is sent. The will of God that brings the great recompense of reward is holding fast to the God kind of faith. Having done all to stand, stand with the knowledge of who we are, with the knowledge of how God has created this world to work, with the knowledge of the weapons of our warfare that are stronger than anything the devil can do. Hold fast to those things. And see the greatness of the recompense of his reward. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you're the God of faith. You have established in this earth the means of mankind exercising our authority. Thank you, Father, that we have what we say. Therefore, we say, say this after me. I say in Jesus' name that I am the righteousness of God. I say in the name of Jesus that himself took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I am healed. I say in the name of Jesus that all of my needs are met according to his riches in glory, by Christ Jesus. I say that I am daily being conformed to the image of Jesus. I say that my words come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, if we confess the word and only the word, there's nothing the devil can do to stop the blessings of God from being ours in every respect. No matter what he tells you, no matter how he tries to make you feel, you're going to have up days and down days. Up days don't affect your faith. Down days don't affect your faith. The only thing that affects your faith is holding fast to the words that you're speaking. So it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you have symptoms or not. It doesn't matter if the symptoms get better or the symptoms get worse. It doesn't matter if your bank books looks like it's going south rather than filling up. God's word works no matter what. Amen? Amen. Well, let me invite you again to healing school tonight. Pastor Chip's going to be teaching. My family and I are going away for a little bit to an undisclosed location. <laughs> and we'll be back soon. We love you, folks. God bless you. <laughs>